sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in, have a seat. The books you see around you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from the sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Along with me, listeners have uh, been getting to know Mrs. Carswell over the last weeks as she just began working with us in uh, mid-August on our show of the uh, 13th, I believe. Yes, August 13th. Aside from uh, being the uh, sister of the uh, unfortunate soul who was our previous reader, we have learned that you are uh, an award-winning elocutionist. Yes, Blue Ribbon. As well as an expert in the field of beekeeping and the production of honey and mead, as I understand? Yes. It's something our family's been doing for generations. And you're in the process of setting up a new apiary right here on the premises. You'll never want honey again from a store once we start producing. Well, it's an interesting process about which I knew very little. I'd never feel at home without the bees. I was uh, surprised that you actually flew out with your own bees, that they let them on the plane, I guess. They're federally approved containers. We always bring our own queen, wherever we go. Oh, well then I'm surprised that your uh, brother never asked if... uh... Oh no, he wouldn't set up a colony. The bees pass through the matrilineal line. He wouldn't mix with the bees anyway. They intimidated him. Oh, I know he wouldn't have kept them in his room. Those are federally approved containers. There's really nothing to worry about. I can find the certificates if it worries you. I I, I trust you. It's just... It's rather loud, actually, the buzzing. I'm surprised you can sleep with them set up right there next to your bed. I couldn't sleep without them. Anyway, it's only the small container that stays. The others go outdoors as soon as I get the correct times. Uh, that That's permanent? You always keep a jar of bees by your bed? To sleep, yes. Your house is very noisy. I don't know if you're aware of all the noises that come out of your walls. No, I... The clicks and the clacks and the thrumming sounds back and forth all night long. It's terrible. But, uh... I don't need to keep them all inside anyway. Just the special bees. That's all I need. I could I could be one of those people who pops pills to sleep, you know. Always strung out on medication, but I'm not. I, I didn't we don't mean believe in that. To get into this, actually. I do have to insist on basic things though. Sleep is important, and I don't intend to go through my day whacked out on pills. I'd rather put my head in the oven. I think I'm going to just start the show, uh, unless you uh, uh, need some water. I have my water. Okay, then, well, uh, this is episode 33, 
Ghosts from Purgatory. I am your host, Al Ridenour, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a a number of monthly rewards related to the uh, production of this show, and I'll have more on Patreon and all that at the end of the episode. This ain't neat, this ain't neat, any neat and all, fire and fleet and candle neat, and Christ receive thy soul. The song you are hearing originated in 14th century Yorkshire and is called The Like Wake Dirge. It was sung as a sort of charm over the body of the deceased in the night before burial. The word like comes via the Saxons from the German word leiche for corpse. The dirge describes in the old Yorkshire dialect the perils confronted by the soul during its journey into the afterlife. The first danger is a thorny moor that must be passed through before coming to cross the bridge of doom. If the deceased has not been charitable in life, the song says, he'll be thrown from the bridge into hell's flames. But the reasonably charitable soul will reach the other side safely, arriving not in heaven, however, but in purgatory, a place with fires all of its own. The only good thing you could say about purgatory is that it's temporary. In its fires, the last traces of sin are supposed to be burned away in a sort of purification process so that the deceased might achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, according to the church's most recent catechism. While the contemporary church has backed away from the idea of literal fire and downplays notions of physical torture, fire was very much on the minds of the early church fathers. While the duration of the punishment might differ depending on one's sins, The great 13th century doctor of the church, Thomas Aquinas, located purgatory next to hell because it was the very same fire endured in both. And bear in mind that this is what lies in store not for the purely evil, but for those the catechism describes as All who die in God's grace and friendship, though still imperfectly purified. If it all sounds rather harsh, rest assured that even in the 6th century it was bothering people. According to legend, it troubled Pope Gregory the Great particularly. Uh, One day, he was said to have been praying to know the status of his poor deceased mother. Suddenly, 
a spirit from the other side appear. A uh, 16th century poem by a uh, J. Mitchell describes the apparition. And there I saw a wonder sight, a cloud black and stinking, full of devils on every side and a soul in fire burning. It is Gregory's mother who, while recognized as virtuous in life, explains her hellish torments with a confession. She had secretly borne two illegitimate children and strangled them in her shame. Thankfully, she has a suggestion for fixing all this. If Gregory will say 30 masses in her name over 30 consecutive days, she will be freed. And he does so, and at the end, she appears to him now beautiful and on her way to heaven. Though Gregory did himself propose this notion of 30 days of masses for souls in purgatory, this would not have been a remedy he associated with the uh, mortal sins attributed to his mother. But the story may have been inspired by something Gregory recounted in the fourth book of his dialogues, in which he describes the ghost of a sinful bishop haunting the baths as a sort of uh, penance for an... Unnamed sin. Something committed right there in the baths. Anyway, the ghost requests a week of masses said on his behalf, and once these are said, according to Gregory, he was freed. The English historian Bede, in the 8th century, recounted a couple of stories as evidence of punishments in the afterlife. The first, involving a man named Drytham, who uh, died and visited a place resembling hell, in particular supports the idea of purgatory. As uh, Drytham's angelic guide tells him, This is not the hell you imagine. Explaining that these souls still await their final disposition. More dramatically, Bede tells of an Irish monk, St. Fursey, uh, flown by an angel over a gloomy valley where four fires, each dedicated to burning away a different sin, roast a horde of writhing sinners. One of the sinners, uh, blazing with fire, is carelessly tossed by a demon and collides with Fursey, who later wakes from his dream to notice a burn on his shoulder and jaw left by his uh, run-in. Even more dramatic and concrete evidence is uh, part of a legend associated with St. Patrick, in which the uh, pagans he would convert refuse to believe unless they can see with their own eyes the otherworldly punishments preached of in his sermons. St. Patrick obliges, pounding his staff upon the earth, which cracks open to reveal a gateway to purgatory. Or in other versions, the Lord reveals to him a, a certain cave in which terrifying visions of purgatory are granted to anyone brave enough to stay overnight. A number of medieval and early modern accounts described adventurers plumbing these depths, the most famous of which is about Sir Owen's excursion around uh, 1180. And you too can still visit this uh, purgatory, or its uh, site at least, uh, since the church had the uh, actual cave sealed in 1632, 
Um, it's on a small Irish island in uh, Loch Derg, or the Lake of the Cave, adjacent to a ruined 12th century monastery. One thing I've not treated listeners to in all these tales are the lurid descriptions of the tortures inflicted on sinners. For that, I've been saving the 12th century narrative called the Vision of Tundal, which uh, is particularly rich in these uh, grisly details. Tundal is a, a cruel, pleasure-loving knight who, one night during a feast, suddenly grows ill, finds his arm paralyzed, collapses, and is taken for dead. While his companions are holding a wake over his body, however, he experiences a terrifying vision which convinces him to mend his ways. During his uh, afterlife adventure, Tundal uh, encounters all manner of monstrous demons. Early on, he meets some black, fire-spitting creatures. Their lips beneath their chins, exposing long teeth and wide throats, and their tongues hung out at the sides like a dog's. On their feet and hands, they had great claws and horny pads, and their tails were sodden and poisonous. He is attacked by these, but rescued by an angelic guide who escorts him through the balance of his trip, urging him on to next enter the mouth of... A huge boar that was bigger than any mountain he had ever seen. Escaping from this, he witnesses... Fiends laying souls out upon the iron, and these souls were consumed in the stinking heat and melted like wax in a pan. And the molten liquid passed through the iron, and the coals like paraffin through a cloth to be collected and reformed and put back by the fiends onto the iron once more for the torment to begin afresh. He then stumbles upon some unfortunate soul stuffed full of squirming serpents. The snakes inside them prepared to emerge. They did so not only from the private parts, but from every limb, head, and feet, back and side, they slid through abdomen and chest and through every point and made their exit all at once, sparing neither flesh nor bones. And there are even members of the clergy there. Riddled with parasites and vermin, their limbs were bitten and raw, and there were grubs and parasites eating away inside them. Some of the demons are more like humans, including... Evil-looking blacksmiths holding great hammers in their hands and hot glowing tongs casting distraught and weeping souls into the forges, and then taking them out again and beating them on the anvils with their hammers. And there are... Butchers standing in the midst of the flames. Some were holding sharp knives and fearsome cleavers. Others were wielding saws, forks for skewering meat over a fire broad axes and instruments designed to drill holes into bone. Uh, and let's see, there's also something called 
the cauldron of dread. Though it's a little confusing what it is exactly, and there's something like the Bridge of Doom from the uh, Like Wake Dirge. It's covered with spikes and traverses a boiling lake filled with monsters. There's a rather comical aspect in the scene, as the angel insists that Tundal, who had previously stolen a cow, must now cross this perilous prickly bridge, leading this same stolen animal, which nearly throws Tundal from the bridge with all of its wild lurching and stopping and starting. Finally, Tundal arrives at what the angel calls... The Heart of Suffering where he encounters Satan himself. The devil is bound with chains of molten brass in the bottom of an immense fiery pit, in the middle of which stands a pillar around which sinners whirl up and down. Like the sparks from a bonfire in a wind. Satan is black and immense and equipped with... A thousand arms and hands, and each hand had twenty fingers, and each finger was fifty feet long with nails as hard as iron, sharper and longer than the lances that knights use in war. With these, he plucks sinners out from the whirling swarm and pops them in his mouth. When he had crushed them and digested them, he expelled them back into the fire, and yet... They revived and were put to renewed torture. And there's also a visit to heaven, but I don't think my listeners are particularly interested in that. Obviously, these earlier works would be an influence on Dante's divine comedy, including his uh, Purgatorio, published in 1300. By 1274, the church had formalized this concept of purgatory in the Second Council of Lyon, and though distinct from hell, earlier descriptions of all these tortures uh, continue to circulate in descriptions of purgatory. The music you are hearing is a late medieval ballad from Norway, Dramvedikt, or The Dream Poem, which relates its own story of a visionary's otherworldly visit to purgatory, hell, and heaven. Its description of purgatory conforms to the key elements of the like-wake dirge, namely the thorny moor and the perilous bridge, to which it adds the intriguing element of black fire. But I'm actually just playing the piece because it makes a nice background for our next topic, All Souls Day. As a general day of remembrance in popular understanding and tradition, the uh, meaning of All Souls Day may differ, but from a strictly theological perspective, All Souls Day was intrinsically linked with and justified by the teaching of purgatory. It's the souls in purgatory for which prayers are offered on this day, not the souls in heaven who have no need of prayers or those in hell who cannot be helped. The modern date of November 2nd was first celebrated in France in the 11th century, becoming universal throughout Christendom in the 13th century. Now, 
An interesting outgrowth of all this is what's called the cult or devotion to the anima sola or the lonely soul. You likely know this uh, iconic image um, of the anima sola, even without knowing the name. It's that of a chained naked female standing in flames with eyes and hands raised to heaven. The cult of this anonymous soul lingering in purgatory and in need of prayers is uh, strong throughout parts of uh, Spain, Latin America, Sicily, and above all in the city of Naples, where devotion to these souls is associated with the bones of particularly the skulls of the dead. Central to this cult is Naples' uh, Fontanella Cemetery, an ossuary located in a hillside cave. It was a sort of mass grave housing the remains of some 40,000 Neapolitans, uh, mainly the indigent or victims of plague and cholera. When torrential floods washed through the charnel house, littering Naples streets with gruesome debris in the 17th century, the bones were hastily returned, uh, leaving the ossuary in even greater disarray than before. In 1872, a local priest initiated a project to sort and more respectfully arrange the remains, and during this effort, popular piety associated with the anima sola became fixated on the skulls with devotees not only praying that the owners of these skulls would be released from purgatory, but also cleaning, naming, and regularly visiting particular skulls they had adopted. In return, the dead were expected to pull a few strings in the afterlife for their adoptive parents. Long before the Fontanella Cemetery was restored, however, a Neapolitan church built in 1616 that of Santa Maria delle Anime del Purgatorio had become a site of this religious devotion to skulls. In its crypt, you can find adopted skulls resting on cushions in niches filled with flowers and lamps and rosaries and prayer requests for the living. Certain skulls are considered particularly powerful in granting requests, with the star skull at least when it comes to matters of marriage and romance, being the tiara-decked skull of Princess Lucia. According to legend, the skull was that of a young woman who, when thwarted in her plans to marry her true love, swallowed a fatal dose of poison. By 1969, these uh, skull-oriented practices had been condemned by the uh, Cardinal of Naples, and the Fontanella Cemetery briefly closed. But both the ossuary and church quickly reopened, and devotion to the cult of the skulls continues, albeit a bit more furtively. The efficacy of prayers offered for souls in purgatory is attested to by the Italian chronicler Jacobus da Varagine in his 1260 compilation of saint stories, Legende Aurea, or the Golden Legend. He writes that Saint Odile of the uh, Sicilian island of Vulcan heard the voices and howlings of devils, which complained strongly because the souls of the dead were taken away from their hands by alms and by prayers, and therefore he ordained that the feasts and remembrance of them that be departed out of this world should be made and held in all monasteries in the day after the Feast of All Hallows. 
Davaragine additionally relates the story of Peter, the abbot of Cluny, whose zeal for offering masses for the dead was found excessive by his bishop. After suspending the abbot for the offense, the bishop is surprised in the churchyard as... All the dead arose up against him, saying, The bishop give us no mass, and yet he hath taken away our priest from us. Now he shall be certain that unless he amends this, he shall die. Not only does the bishop reinstate the abbot, but after being threatened by a graveyard full of corpses, he begins saying requiem masses himself. Around the same time the Golden Legend appeared, a uh, Cistercian monk from the Abbey of Byland in Yorkshire, England, began filling a few blank pages in a collection of manuscripts with local ghost stories he'd collected. The twelve Byland ghost stories are quite preoccupied with ghosts uh, eager to ease their purgatorial sentences by having masses said, but uh, that's not to say they're all predictable. The first one, for instance, describes... A traveller, carrying a load of beans, encountered a whirling haystack on the road. Inside the haystack, a strange light glowed. The traveller invoked the haystack. It became a man. This man insisted on carrying the traveller's beans. When they reached the river, the man disappeared leaving the traveller with beans on his own back. The traveller had masses sung for the soul of the revenant, and the ghost was laid. Laying ghosts is an older expression for delivering them back into the uh, other world, like an exorcism. Uh, part of this process, often mentioned in the collection elsewhere, is uh, invoking or conjuring the ghost, which here simply means calling it out to ask what is required to lay it. The second ghost story is equally strange, describing a spirit encounter by a tailor with something that looked like an injured crow. The tailor tried to help. The crow shot sparks from his sides. In fear, the tailor crossed himself. With a terrible screech, the crow attacked. Injured, the tailor prayed for protection. The crow turned into a dog. The tailor invoked the creature to speak. In life, the dog had been a man and had been excommunicated for a terrible crime. Now his ghost wanted absolution and 180 masses to be said for his soul. If the tailor helped him, the ghost would tell him how to heal his wounds. Otherwise, the tailor's flesh would rot and his skin would waste away. The tailor went to the priest who had excommunicated the man. The priest refused to give absolution. The tailor begged, who wants their flesh to rot or their skin to waste away? Finally, the priest agreed. The masses are said and... The tailor went to meet the ghost. The ghost arrived as a goat, then turned into a flame. Satisfied, the ghost told the tailor to bathe in the river and scrub his body with a certain rock. Then the tailor's wounds would heal. The ghost then left on his journey to heaven. The tailor returned home and fell ill. 
doesn't quite sound fair, does it? Anyway, more strange stories from medieval Byland. A woman once carried a ghost into her house on her back. It was probably on a bed. Witnesses say the woman's hand sunk deep into the ghost's flesh as if it were rotten or an illusion. And... A howling spirit appeared to William as a pale horse. When William invoked the spirit, it turned into a bolt of cloth and rolled away. Uh, what? It's certain stories of the supernatural do feel as if they've been shaped uh, to conform to particular literary conventions, but these certainly do not. There's a bizarre quality in the Byland accounts that feels uh, more like uh, contemporary reports of UFO encounters or other uh, paranormal phenomena. The next text we'll look at is more conventional in presenting an encounter with the spirit from the other side. It's a uh, 14th century story called, in the modern English version, would be The Ghost of Guy, which uh, purports to document a series of uh, ghostly visitations taking place between Christmas and Easter in the uh, town of Alès in uh, southern France. While a ghost of Guy is hardly as bizarre as the Byland stories, there's uh, nonetheless something um, strangely contemporary in its uh, similarity to... Uh, modern exorcism or poltergeist narratives as they appear in uh, horror films or paranormal TV programs. Um, here's a bit from the text. When the mayor heard about the haunted house, he gathered together a large number of men, armed them, and told them to go with the prior and do whatever he instructed them to do. Everyone was given an opportunity to receive the Eucharist so that the devil could not harm them. Then the prior, very discreetly, placed a communion wafer in a small container and put it inside his habit so that no one knew it was there. After offering a preliminary blessing on the house and sprinkling holy water, the prior says to the widow, Take me to the place where God died, he said. The woman looked terrified. She was shaking visibly, but nonetheless, she took the prior to the bed where her husband had died. They sang, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world, three times, and in response a small, feeble voice that might have been that of a small child was heard to say, Amen. Amen. The hair on the back of their necks stood on end. Are you an evil spirit or a good one? asked the prior. I must be an evil spirit because of the things I did during my life, for which I shall suffer shortly. The spirit, which begins to speak in a voice more like that of an adult male, admits that it is the spirit of Guy. Then tell me, said the prior, where exactly are you? I am here in purgatory. Purgatory lies in many different places, replied the soul. One is common to all. Others are specific to each individual. There follow some passages of theological argument between the prior and the spirit, with the prior eventually asking Guy if he has seen Christ in bodily form since his death. The spirit answers, Yes, I see it now, for it is beneath your robes in the box that you picked up from the altar. 
All the people in the room froze and stared because they had no idea that the prior had concealed a consecrated host about his person. The wafer exerts a power over the spirit, and the prior, seeing this, attempts to lead the spirit from the house. As he moves through the rooms, there is heard... A sound rather like the sweeping of a broom across a pavement. The sound followed him. Spirit! shouted the prior. I command you to show yourself. There was only silence. The prior walked back to where the lady, Guy's widow, was lying on her bed, as though she could take no more. The sound of a broom sweeping across the floor accompanied them to her bedside, where she had begun to grind her teeth, exposing her gums and crying out as though she were mad. As it turns out, the woman is consumed by fear of the punishment awaiting her because of a sin she and her husband committed together. The prior demands to know the nature of this sin. We performed an unnatural marital act together in this house, and for which, in truth, she was to blame. But we never completed our penance, and so therefore we must continue with our suffering until our penance is complete. Tell me what it was so that married men may be warned. I'm sorry to say no juicy details are provided as the spirit discreetly answers. God will not permit me to divulge such information. Despite the way the uh, spirit rather nastily lays blame on his wife, he does redeem himself somewhat when he explains that he had petitioned the Lord to allow him to haunt the home in order to encourage his wife to perform her penance in life to avoid the penance he suffers in purgatory. Our final narrative conforms more to uh, the gothic expectations we have for ghost stories. It comes from The Adventures of Arthur, a story from Northern England, probably set down in the late 14th century. The passage featuring the ghost takes place during a hunt organized by Arthur. Sir Gawain and some of the hunting dogs have stayed behind with Queen Guinevere, who wishes to rest beside a lake. Then, out of nowhere, a fire appeared over the lake as though the devil himself was emerging from its depths. It took upon itself a form, moved onto the land, and filling the air with ungodly screams, it began to approach Sir Gawain. A curse on the body I once had, it wailed to him. Now my cares have begun. Oh, woe is me. The ghost was naked, and its black bones protruded through a festering clay. It cried and moaned like a woman, and there was not a square inch of its body that was not disgustingly infected in some way. The body cursed. It stuttered. It hesitated, it whispered, it groaned as though it had lost its wits. Sir Gawain approaches the ghost and notices... On the back of its neck, a toad biting into the base of its skull. Its eyes were sunken and glowing like coals glowed this ghost, clothed only in filth, encircled by snakes, and with so many toads clinging to its rotting body 
that Sir Gawain could not have begun to number them. The warrior drew his sword. The rotting corpse stared back at him, unflinching. Sir Gawain maintained his stance. An almighty wail came from this tormented ghost. The greyhounds that remained in the forest ran terrified into the thickets and hid their heads. Birds began to screech uncannily from the trees. Sir Gawain demands, What business have you here? Why do you haunt these woods? I was once the fairest lady in all of Christendom, replied the apparition. But now I have exchanged wealthy living for this cruel suffering, clothed and buried in this clay. It turns out that the ghost is that of Guinevere's mother, and she brings dire warnings. Take heed for all the fine ermine that you wear. Beware of what my mirror reveals. King or emperor, all will end up like me. She wishes to spare her daughter from the torment she herself has earned and exhorts her to various acts of Christian charity and piety, all the while griping about her own status in purgatory. You live on dainty dishes served from the finest kitchens, while I suffered dismally beneath a lake, rotting and naked, tormented by fiends who plunge me into cauldrons of sulfur and molten brass. It would exhaust any tongue to have to list all my punishments, but I must speak to you of them. Take heed and mend your ways. Be warned by my suffering. Mother, cried Guinevere, distraught. I hate to think of you suffering like this. Which of your sins has most displeased God? Excessive pride, replied the rotting corpse. She then goes on to prophesy Arthur's eventual downfall brought on by excessive pride. Tell me, then tell me truly, mother, what will alleviate your grief? I will make sure that churchmen sing for your sake, but those horrible snakes and toads that cling to your body and bite you, they make my flesh crawl. Your bones are so black. It is lovemaking, excitement, Romance and delight that has cast me deep into this lake. All the world's pleasures have been sucked away from me by these snakes. They torment me, Guinevere. If nine hundred masses were sung for me in one day, my soul would quickly be brought to heaven. Then, with a grisly screech, the ghost moved away, groaning back into the green woodland. The air cleared, the wind took the clouds away, the sky emerged, and the sun began to shine. Later in the story, we hear that Guinevere has arranged the masses requested by her mother, presumably shortening the duration of her sufferings in the form of a soggy corpse nibbled by toads and tortured by demons. Well, impressive as all these tales may be, what about those of us who have never met a soul wandering out of purgatory? Thankfully, 
The Eternal City is host to an odd little museum, and I do mean little as it consists only of a glass case or two, uh, known as the Museo delle Anime del Purgatorio, or Museum of the Souls of Purgatory. Housed in a small church on the banks of the Tiber, it displays books, articles of clothing, and pieces of furniture bearing burn marks, most in the shape of hands, said to be left by tortured souls reaching out from the depths of purgatory. It was opened in 1897 when a local priest cleaning up after a fire in his church noticed a smoky image on the wall behind the altar, one that impressed him as the likeness of a face in purgatorial torment. He spent the rest of his life scouring the globe for similar artifacts which would offer incontrovertible proof of purgatory's existence. All fine and good for a priest in 19th century Rome, but what about something a bit more contemporary? A modern classic in the genre, and one with which we'll close, is the Well to Hell story, uh, that of a borehole supposedly drilled by a team of Russian engineers to the depth of 14.4 kilometers, which apparently is the precise depth of hell. Uh, this became clear when those present were said to have heard and recorded the screams of the eternally damned. Uh, beginning as a report on the Evangelical Trinity Broadcast Network in 1989, the story was picked up by tabloids, circulated on the internet, and finally, in 2020, appeared in audio form when the recording was heard for the first time on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM radio show. Let's have a listen. Uh, this could scare you. And uh, I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. I do hope everyone, including those in hell, have been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to uh, share episodes with friends who might be inclined to also enjoy what we do here. We particularly appreciate reviews, as these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you have left a review, by all means, do let me know, and we'll give you a little shout-out. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with uh, show notes with plenty of images and video links to any media that might be used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for this show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to uh, extra elements that go into the uh, making of the podcast, digital downloads of uh, rare books used in the preparation of the show, the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level subscribers. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. A special thanks to our new patrons, Maria Saul Rodriguez, George Lightfoot, Ashling Coons, Candice, and to Michael Simrod. And thank you to Vol HDT and Putts for Tacos for the kind reviews. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose 
projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. Warn listeners in advance so they may have the option of turning the radio off for 30 seconds while it plays. It has always haunted me.